going to start a little different today. Um, so what we're going to do is I'm going to ask a question. I'm just going to have you actually respond back to me. So that means you'll have to actually talk out. You don't have to raise your hand or anything like that. We're not in school, but I want you to think about this question. How does the outside world view the church? What do you think? How does the outside world view the church? How do they view Christians? Okay, Brandon, you raise your hand, so I'm going to let you go first. Hypocrites. <laughs> Hypocrites, okay. How else? I'm sorry? Contempt. Contempt, with contempt, okay. How else? Yeah. Judgmental. Judgmental. I think it depends on their personal experience with us. Okay. Not everybody views us that way if they've had good experiences, but unfortunately, one of us doing something in a judgmental, hypocritical way spoils it. Sure, good. Yeah. They think we're perfect. Okay, they may think we're perfect, okay. Yes? Better than they are. Okay, better than they are, possibly. What else? It's just a crutch. Okay, they maybe view it as just a crutch. Good. Anybody else? Always well dressed. Okay, well dressed. All right. Yeah, Brandon's like, that's me. I'm getting up and leaving now. <laughs> Anybody else? All right, I began to think about that question. Andrea, will you turn me down just a tad? Um, I began to think about that question. Uh, just especially in light of where we've been in 1 Corinthians. We're in the book of 1 Corinthians. Last week we looked at chapter 12. This week we're looking at chapter 13, right? The big love chapter. Uh, next week we'll look at chapter 14. So I've been, in light of that, I really began thinking about that question. Why, do, why does the outside world many times look at us as hypocritical, as judgmental, as um, maybe just different or whatever it is? And, and as I began to read in Scripture and really pray this week, I... I feel like maybe I might know why. And I think it's because sometimes as a church and even as individual believers, we've missed something. We've just missed something. We've missed something I think that is very, very critical to why we even do church today. I think sometimes we miss something that's even critical to why God has even put us here on this earth. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 27. It says, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Notice at the very beginning, verse 28, it says, God has placed. So in other words, you're not here by accident. Okay, whether this is your first time you're with us today or whether you come each and every week, it is no accident that you're here today. Okay, God has brought you here today. Maybe this, if this is your first time, maybe God has brought you here because there's something he needs you to hear today. If you're here each and every week, God has brought you here because there's some gifts that you have that you should be exercising, you should be utilizing. 
So it says God has placed them with all these different, some prophets, some apostles, some teachers. And then he talks about the different types of gifts that were given. And then in verse 29, it says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have the gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret. It says, and then he goes, now eagerly desire the greatest gifts. So let me tell you what's going on here. The problem that we are finding in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 with the church is they're looking at the different gifts that they have. And they're looking at the different positions they have within the church. And they're starting to gain a little bit of spiritual arrogance. They're starting to say, well, I have this gift, so my gift is more important than your gift. Or, and that makes me more important. Or, I serve in this office, so I'm more, imper- more important than you. It would be no different than me to say, well, I'm the pastor. All you do is hand out bulletins, so I'm more important than you. <laughs> or for someone to say, I have the gift to be able to lead people in worship, so I'm more important than the person that has the gift of working with children. That's what's going on in the book of 1 Corinthians. But listen to what Paul says at the end of verse 31. He says, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. So Paul ends this talking about gifts. And he says, you each are desiring this gift and that gift. He goes, but let me show you what you're missing. Let me show you the thing that really holds everything together and you're just missing it. Let me show you the most excellent way. Let me show you the best way. And that's when we get into chapter 13. Look at verse 1. It says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, most people that play the drums, like just say, take when Brandon Pride plays the drums, if he hits a cymbal, it sounds good, right? Because it's, it's in beat, and it's in tune, and it's all those things that I have no idea about. Now, if I hit a cymbal, it's a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. All right? That's not a pleasant sound in of itself, is it? Now, when you accompany it with other drums and other cymbals, it makes a pleasant sound. But that by itself just kind of hangs out there, doesn't it? That's what Paul says. He says, you can say you have this or you can have that, but without love, you're a clanging cymbal. You're a resounding gong. He goes on in verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and of all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So Paul is saying, church, you got a lot of things. And you're doing a lot of things. But you're missing the most important thing. And he says, without love, all those things... Or a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I really believe that <coughs> church, we've done a lot of good things. I believe the church as a whole has done a lot of good things. We've created some very impressive ministries and programs that reach people. 
But I wonder if sometimes in the midst of all those programs and in the midst of all those ministries and in the midst of all the things that we do well, if we have lost focus of the one thing that really matters. And that's love. I mean, think about it this way. If I were to ask you, how many of you are so grateful for the grace of God? Everybody would say amen and raise their hand and say, yes, I'm so grateful for the grace of God in my life. But yet we have such a difficult time extending that grace to others. Don't we? We love the fact that God has shown us grace and shown us unconditional grace. We love the fact that we sing how his grace pours over me and we love that and, and we worship in that. But when it comes to other people, whew, we're not so good at extending grace. Well, maybe we're good at extending grace to those within our, within our home, within our house. But what about the person different than you? What about the person who doesn't act the way that you act? A couple weeks ago, big thing on in mainstream media was Kanye West and the fact that he has accepted Christ as his Savior. And here's the thing that blew my mind as I'm going through these articles and posts. There were so many Christians that came out and basically said, there's no way that he accepted Jesus. I'm just going to wait and see if it's legit. And it kind of hit me. It was like... Why can't we just celebrate in the fact that one lost soul is now found? And God brought me back to 1 Corinthians 13. You're doing all these things great, but you're missing one thing. You're missing love. You're missing that grace that you have the grace, but so often do we have a difficult time extending that grace to others. So I want to point out a couple things that Paul tells us about love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Number one, nothing matters without love. Paul is saying the gifts are important, but without love... There can be a lot of successful things happen in ministry and in church work, but without love, they don't matter. I think about our trunk or treat that we did a couple weeks ago. Not even a couple weeks ago, last week. I love trunk or treat. I love the fact that we had so many people here on our campus and we got to meet and talk to. But here's the thing, as great of an event as that was, if we did that out of any other motivation other than pure love, that's what it is. In other words, nothing matters without love. We can pile up all the good deeds, all of our gifts. We can be smart. We can be beautiful. We can be strong. We can be eloquent. We can be wealthy. We can be educated. But without love, it's nothing. This idea of love being the supreme speaks to us in a couple ways. First way it speaks to us is in regards to our motivation. The motivation behind what we do. Why do we do the things we do? Do we maybe do them out of guilt or out of pressure? Why do we do the things that we do? Um, about four months ago, I was asked to go and speak at a church um, in Hutchinson. And they were wanting to know, they'd seen, heard about our church and heard about the growth that we've had. And the question he asked me was like, How's your, how did your church grow from this to this in such a short time? 
That was a question. I was at this roundtable discussion, and I thought a lot about the question, and he was wanting me to give like, well, we do this ministry, and we have this, and we have that, and we have this, and we have that, and, and I stopped and paused for a moment, and I said, I'll be honest with you, I don't know. And he kind of laughed. He's like, well, that's not really what I was looking for. I was like, I get that. I said, but honestly, I said, there hasn't been one ministry or, or one program or anything. I said, but when I became the pastor at Northside, I wanted to do a couple things. I said, I wanted people to understand that we're all a mess. Each and every one of us are a mess. Okay, some of us are better at hiding it than others. But at the end of the day, we're all a mess. And I wanted people to understand that we're a mess, but Jesus never wanted us to stay in our mess. Okay, he wants to change us. I said, but the second thing I wanted to do, I said, I just wanted to love people. Through and through. I just want to love people. I said, that's why I got in ministry 20 years ago. Because I just wanted to love people. Love has to be the motivating factor. Could you imagine for a moment if everything we did in our life, we did with love being the motivating factor? Could you imagine how that would change your job? The job you currently hold. Could you imagine if you walked into that job tomorrow with love as the motivating factor? What about the ministry you currently serve in? What if you walked into that ministry with the idea that love is my motivating factor? That's why I'm doing this. Everything that we do, love should be the motivating factor. What about conversations with strangers? What about when you go out to eat today and you sit down at your table and the waiter or waitress brings you your drinks? What if the brief conversations you had with that person, love was a motivating factor? I heard it asked this way in our men's Bible study this past Wednesday. Do you see those people with souls, or do you see them as there just to serve you? Love being a motivating factor changes that. It changes the way you see people. Now I get it. Some of you are like, how can I love somebody I don't know, right? It's easy to love people you know. It's easy to, to love your husband, to love your wife. Well, sometimes it's easy, okay? But for the most part, it's easy to love those you are currently in close proximity with. But how do you love somebody you don't know? How do you love a complete stranger? What if you begin to look at them and say, I love you because Jesus loves you. I see value in you because Jesus sees value in you. And I see you as more than just somebody's here to serve me or somebody's here to check me out at Dylan's, or somebody's here to deposit the money into the bank. I, I see you as, as more than that. I see you as a person with a soul and a person that unless they know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, when they pass away from this life, the Bible says without Jesus Christ that they're on their way to hell. Love has to be that motivating factor. It should change the way we look at people. It speaks to our motivation, also speaks to our relationships, specifically within the church. 
speaks to our relationships with one another. We can serve and do amazing things as a church. We can have a great worship service. We can have a great sermon. We can have great ministries. We can have great outreach. We can literally check all the boxes of what makes a church great. But if we aren't loving each other and loving the world around us, we've missed the point. We can have all of those amazing things, but without love, it says we're a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. At some point in church history, we forgot that people matter and people need Jesus. They don't need condemnation. They don't need judgment. They don't even need more sermons. They need more Jesus. But somewhere down the road, we, we forgot that. We've made church about so many other things except the fact that people are broken. And except the fact that we once were broken, but now have been healed and made whole. And we have the thing that made us whole within us. And all we have to do is share that with other broken people. We've missed that at some point or another. God really worked me over this week. And Wednesday afternoon, I was sitting in my office, and God asked me this question. It wasn't an audible thing, like we said, Ryan. It wasn't anything like that. It was just, I just, this question just went rolling over and over in my mind. I have to clarify that, because I think sometimes people think like, I hear directly from God, and it's this voice. It doesn't work that way with me. If it works that way with you, that's awesome, but it doesn't work that way with me. But this question just kind of continued to roll over and over in my mind. When did we ever get to the point that loving people didn't matter anymore? When did we reach that point that loving people don't matter? Or doesn't matter, excuse me, incorrect English there. You gotta love that. I think most of us would say this. Well, we love people. We do love people. I mean, that's why we do this. That's why we do that. And, and I think sometimes I would say yes. But other times I would say, yeah, we probably do those things pretty much out of obligation. Right? You signed up to serve in a ministry. And because you're a committed person, you're going to show up to serve in that ministry. I think sometimes we have certain ministries not because we just feel like, man, we just really need to love kids. I think sometimes we have certain ministries because we feel like that's just what's expected to have. In a church, you have a youth ministry, you have a kids ministry, you have a music ministry, you have all these, that's the expected thing. And I think sometimes we lose f focus on the fact that it's truly about loving others. Jeannie Allen said this, she said, leadership without showing grace or needing grace is an empty thing. Think about that for a moment. Leadership without showing grace or needing grace is an empty thing. What is she saying? She goes, leadership or doing church or doing ministry is empty. If we don't realize, number one, we're a mess. We don't have it all together. And we need God's grace each and every day in our life. But it's also empty if we fail to realize that the other people around us need God's grace as well. 
And it's also empty if we fail to show them God's grace. Everything that you do, every person you come in contact desperately needs the love of God in their life. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22. It says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. John 13, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. Love was a motivating factor in everything that Jesus did. <laughs> When Jesus came to this earth, he spent three years earthly ministry. The end of his life, he's being betrayed in the garden. And Peter, being Peter, tries to stop it and he swings a sword and what does he do? He cuts off a guy's ear. How that happens, I don't know. If I'm swinging a sword, I'm not going for an ear, okay? But he cuts off a guy's ear. And Jesus basically picks up the ear, heals the man who's about to arrest him. But Jesus said something very interesting. He said, no one takes my life. But I lay down my life willingly. See, Jesus' life wasn't taken from him. It wasn't stolen from him. It wasn't like Jesus was this poor pawn and could do nothing about it. Jesus had all power under heaven and on earth. Jesus had all authority to do anything that he wanted to. He even said, at, the, at any time I say anything, my father will bring legions of angels to wipe everybody out. But he willingly laid down his life. Why? Because love was the motivating factor. Everything Jesus did, it was, it was about love. The second thing I want to point out to you. Love is more than words, it's action. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. Now, these are very familiar verses here. Many of you probably had these verses read in your wedding. It says, love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, does not dishonor others, is not self-seeking, is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always loves, always hopes, always perseveres. So we said love is, is more than just words, isn't it? You prove that out through your actions. You can say that you love somebody, but unless you show them through your actions, it's empty. It doesn't matter. And he gives this, Paul gives this list of things that, that love is or that love does not do. And the first one, he says, love is patient. Now, this is where most of us are like, oh, I'm done. I can't do patience. Have you met my so-and-so, right? Okay. We immediately go to that point where I, I can't be patient. I get it. Patience is hard. Patience is bearing with other people's imperfections, faults, and differences. But it's also giving them time to change and making room for their mistakes without coming down hard on them. That's what it means to love somebody patiently. It's understanding that they're imperfect. And it's understanding why you hope that some of those imperfections will eventually change. But it's also understanding that you've got to give them some room to change. And you've got to give them some room to possibly make those mistakes again and again. Why? Because love is patient. Most of us, though, are very impatient people, aren't we? We want things now. 
We want our spouse to change now. We want our kids to be good now, okay? But it, the Bible says love is patient. It also says love is kind. This is patience in action. Okay? He says love is patient, but love is kind is literally us acting that patience out. A great example. Abby was running cross country this year. And she got done with her last meet, and we allowed her to pick where she wanted to eat. And she picked Olive Garden. Okay? So we decided we were going to go to Olive Garden. I don't necessarily like Olive Garden. I'm not a big Italian food person. I don't really like red sauce, which that's pretty much Italian food, summed up in a lot of ways. So I'm not a big pasta guy. I, some of you are looking at me with judgmental eyes right now, uh, which we're going to get to that in a moment when we talk about love. So I'm going to be talking straight at some of you. But So anyways, but I have one thing that I order when I go to Red Lobster. It's their chicken parm. That is the one thing I order. It is always on point. So we sit down, and we're waiting, and they come, and the lady asks us what we want to drink, and, and then I'm waiting for the breadsticks, because I can do the breadsticks and the salad. I'm really, some of you are getting really hungry right now. So I'm waiting for all these things. Our bread, it took a while for our breadsticks to come, and at one point I made the joke. I'm like, well, apparently they had to go get the flour from the store, you know, and we're just kind of laughing, and salad comes, it's kind of late coming out, and it's not that good, and finally takes our order, and all the meals finally come out, and through this time, I'm growing more and more impatient. And they bring out my chicken parm, and I look at it, and the first words out of my mouth were, what is this? And she was like, it's chicken parm. I said, uh, no, it's not. And at that moment, I lost all track of the fact that I was a pastor or a Christian or anything else. All I knew was you messed up the only one thing I can eat in this restaurant. Okay, it was like some grilled chicken that they dumped a bunch of cheese and red sauce on and like called it a day. So I'm having this debate slash argument with this lady that this isn't chicken parm. And my wife is just looking at me like, you need to be quiet. <laughs> so finally the lady walks away. She's going to go get a manager. And Becca's like, what are you doing? I said, I'm getting my food. Okay, so at this particular moment, I completely forgot about the whole thing. This, love is kind. Why? Because love is kind is patience in action. It's being patient with people. It goes on to say, love does not envy. It's not greedy. It isn't jealous. It isn't selfish. It doesn't want what others have. I think you have a very hard time loving somebody if you're constantly jealous of what they have. It does not envy. Then it goes on and says, it does not boast, it is not proud. Now this is the flip side of jealousy. Jealousy is wanting what someone else has. Bragging is trying to make others jealous of what we have. Jealousy puts others down. Bragging builds me up. So it's love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast. It is not, doesn't brag about the things that we have to make others jealous. Then it says it does not dishonor others, or some may say it is not rude. It does not needlessly offend people. It is courteous. It is polite. It's sensitive to the feelings of others and uses tact. And I've heard some people, and I've said this myself too, I'm just a blunt person. 
people should just get used to that. Well, if I'm going to be blunt, when we say I'm just a blunt person, that is essentially an excuse for saying I don't care about trying to be nice. That's essentially what that is. We can disguise it however we want. We can dress it up however we want. But at the end of the day, that's essentially what it is. But here's the thing. Jesus was blunt. If you read the life of Jesus, he was blunt. He didn't sugarcoat things. But when he talked to people, he did it in a loving manner. Jesus was able to address sin with people, but it was always in a loving way. Love was always his motivating factor. And I can honestly say that most Christians, we could really stand to work on this. Couldn't we? Most of us probably wouldn't say, I'm not rude, I'm not a rude person. Most of us would say that. But I think our lives may say something a little different. Our social media posts would probably say something a little different. How many times do we post something on social media and think, I don't care if this offends anybody. I've got my right to say whatever I want. You are correct. You have your right to say whatever you want. (coughs) But Paul tells us that love is not rude. And that love should be our motivating factor for everything that we do. It goes on to say it's not self-seeking. It does not demand its own rights. I believe the secret to every discord or every conflict within a marriage, within a family, within a church, within a community, within a job, is us seeking our own way and our own desires. Selfishness is the root of every problem that we have. Every confrontation, every discord we have, selfishness is somewhere there at the root. But it says love is not self-seeking, is not selfish. It goes on to say it is not easily angered. This is a tough one for me. I've told you about the times when I kind of hulk out, right? But love is not easily angered. Love's not touchy. Love doesn't require other people to walk around eggshells. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not keep a tally of our husband's wrongs or tally of our wife's wrongs, of our kids' wrongs. It doesn't keep a tally and then brings them up at convenient times. It says love keeps no record of wrongs. Love always forgives. It says love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. This means love doesn't delight when somebody messes up. We're not excited when somebody strays away. We're not excited when somebody messes up. It says it goes, and it goes on to say love always protects. Love is literally the roof, okay, that covers our relationships. Love is that roof that keeps the rain out in our relationships. It always protects. It always trusts doesn't mean that it's gullible, but also means it isn't suspicious without a reason to be. Many of us have a difficult time trusting, and I get that, because we've been hurt at some point or another, so we have a difficult time trusting other people. I totally understand that. But love says this. Love always trusts. Most of us, one person has hurt us in our past. And then we impose what that person did on every other person and every other relationship we come in contact with. 
And we do this. It's a self-preservation thing. It's to keep us safe in our own mind. But love always trusts. Then it says it always hopes. Doesn't ignore reality or problems, but doesn't ex- also doesn't expect the person to fail. And it refuses to see failure as final. It's this idea of godly optimism. Any time that I've met with a couple to do any sort of marital advice or marital counseling or when Becca meets with them, this is the one thing I always look for. Do they have hope that this can work? Because if they have hope that it can work, it can work. But the moment they've lost hope, it's an uphill battle. But love always hopes. It always perseveres. In spite of difficulties, love hangs in there. Love doesn't bail, in other words. Love doesn't bail on a friend. Friendships are difficult because they might disappoint us. And many times when we get disappointed, we pull back. But love doesn't bail. It doesn't bail on your church. I've heard people say, I love my church, but then the church does something that they don't like or don't agree with, and they bail. I've often said this to people when they've talked about church. It's like, do you bail on your family? They go, well, no. It's like, well, why would you bail on your church? We're family. Love doesn't bail on your marriage. We romanticize marriage in a big way. We think when we get married that it's all going to be cupcakes and roses for the rest of our life. And we're never going to have a problem. But marriage is hard work. Marriage is work. Now, this is another thing we got to keep in mind, too. Everything that we're talking about, we're talking about from a perfect world experience, right? There are times, though, where things happen out of our control. And some of you have been in a marriage where you felt bailed on. And you felt like your partner essentially bailed on you. The beautiful thing about scripture, the beautiful thing about God, the beautiful thing about church is that we serve a God who loves us, who forgives us, and who restores us each and every time. Love doesn't bail. At the end of the day, love is a choice we make, right? It's not a feeling. We don't fall in and out of love. It's purely a choice. We choose to love that person through good and through bad. We choose to love our kids even when they're doing things we don't agree with what they're doing. We choose to love our two-year-old even when they wake up at midnight and keep us up till 6 a.m. We choose to love our 16-year-old when they talk back. We choose to love our 16-year-old the first time they get into their their first car accident and our insurance rates go up. All right? We choose to love... Romans 5.8 says this, but God demonstrates his love, or he shows his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Last thing, number three, love will last. These last few verses in 1 Corinthians 13. It says, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness has come... What is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only reflection as in a mirror. 
when we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. What Paul is saying there, he's saying right now you don't see the whole picture. Right now we don't see the whole picture. Okay, we only see what's right in front of us right now. We don't see the whole picture. God sees the entire picture. And God says, these three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. I want you to think about this for a moment. I really wanted to think about why does God say of those three things, the greatest is love. <coughs> One day, when you stand face to face with Jesus... And you look Jesus dead in the eye. At that moment, you no longer need faith. Grab a hold of that. One day when you see Jesus face to face, you will no longer need faith. Because at that moment, your faith has become sight. You no longer need hope. Because you're looking your hope dead in the eye. But love still remains. Love is still there. God's love for you, your love for God, your love for others. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. The greatest evidence for Jesus in our world today is purely love. If you want to show someone Jesus, you've got to show them that you love them. Most people are not going to care how much you know until they know how much you really care about them. Majority of people that come to know Jesus come to know Jesus through a relationship with somebody else. It's because somebody else had a relationship with them and they poured time and they poured their energy in them. So church, everything we do, everything we do, from going to work, to going to the store, to dealing with our spouse, to dealing with our kids, to dealing with our roommates, to dealing with our teammates, to going to church, to handing out a bulletin, to playing music on a stage, to welcoming people to our church, to working in the kids' ministry, to teaching a Sunday school class, to making coffee, everything that we do, Paul says the motivation should be love. <coughs> we should do it out of love. We serve because we love people. We witness and share our faith because we want people to know the love of God. The motivation should be love. Love never fails and it should be our motivation in everything. A couple next steps. Number one, check your motives. What's your motives? Just check your motives. Say, okay, God, is everything am I doing, am I doing it through the motivation of love? I had to check my motives this week. And not all of my motives were a motive of love. I noticed... <laughs> Very seldom when I interact with people outside do I view them as someone with a soul. 
The person that I see on the street, that I smile at, that I wave at, or I say hello to. Do I view them as somebody with a soul? And somebody who God loves? And who's somebody who desperately needs the love of God? We need to check our motives. Number two, we need to see things through the lens of love. <clears throat> see things through the lens of love. Allow love to blind you, if you will. But so many times we see things through the lens of judgment. We see through the, through the lens of hate. We see through the lens of anger. We see through the lens of unforgiveness. When Paul says, why don't you look through the lens of love? Begin to view people the way that, that God tells us to view people. View them as somebody who desperately needs me. Even though, yes, they're different than us. And they may annoy us. And they may think differently. But at the end of the day, they desperately need Jesus. Jesus told us this. He said, one day... I'm going to come back. He says, one day I'm coming back. I'm coming again. Jesus died on the cross. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. And he said, church, don't worry. One day I'm coming back to get you. That's what we call the rapture. But he also said this. You'll never know when it's going to happen. He goes on to say, it happens. It'll happen like a thief in the night. Nobody ever plans for someone to break into their house, do they? Nobody ever expects it coming. Right? It always catches you off guard. Even if you have a security system, even if you feel like you have some things in place, it always catches you off guard. You never go to bed thinking, someone's going to break into my house tonight. It just happens. Jesus said, when I come back, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. When you least expect it. Why is that important? At that moment, when Jesus comes back, the Bible says, all those who are Christians that are on this earth, we go with him. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord, right? But here's the problem. There will still be people left. And the Christian witness is left. So while you may sit pretty with your security eternally of where you're going to go when Jesus comes back. How about the person that you interact with on your job? How about the waitress or the waiter that's going to wait on you this afternoon? How about your neighbor? How about your kids? How about your spouse? How about your mom? How about your dad? How about your aunt? How about your uncle? How about the person who's hurt you worse than anybody else? Can you see them through the lens of love? 
And if we see them through the lens of love, then we are so concerned about where they'll spend eternity. And love is that motivating factor. Would you bow your heads with me?